everyone, welcome back. So the Jewish people have lost a lot of things over the years. The tomb of our most famous king, the menorah from the second temple, Christopher Columbus's bar mitzvah suit, and more stuff yet to still be uncovered here at Jew I Don't Know. But maybe the most embarrassing thing is to have lost 10 entire tribes of Israelites. You've probably heard something vague about the 10 lost tribes, as they play an important role in both Jewish and Christian history and philosophy, but did they ever really exist? And is it possible that we found a few of them still alive and kicking? I mean, look, would I have done an entire episode here if the answer was no? No. So I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Unsolved Jewish Mysteries, a Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Now, maybe losing 10 tribes isn't so bad, especially if we, say, like, had a huge amount to begin with, like, statistically speaking. But we only had 12, so yeah, 10 is a lot to lose. Who were they? Where did they go? Why did they go missing and when? We have pretty decent answers, or at least theories, but that hasn't stopped hundreds of years of speculation. Some of those ideas might have actually turned out to be true. In other words, we might not have lost all 10. So let's get into it. Now in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, the Jewish forefather Jacob, grandson of Abraham, had 12 sons. On his deathbed, Jacob called forth all his sons and individually blessed them. It was clear that they were each destined to certain greatness. Fast forward several hundred years and Moses has brought the Israelites out of slavery. As they wandered in the desert on the way to the promised land, they divided themselves into tribes based on their descent from each of Jacob's 12 sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Joseph, and Benjamin. Like in high school, each tribe had its own section in the cafeteria and appointed its own leaders and priests. Probably had a fight song, which has been lost to us. When they arrived at the edge of the land of Canaan, they had to figure out who was going to settle where. And the Torah here performs a little shuffle. It gets kind of confusing. The tribe of Joseph was replaced by two of Joseph's sons, who Jacob had, on his deathbed, adopted as his own, Ephraim and Manasseh. Twelve tribes, but minus one because Joseph's gone now, plus two, Ephraim and Manasseh, so now we've got thirteen tribes. But it was also determined that the tribe of Levi wouldn't get any specific territory, but would instead serve as priests. They got to control individual cities, but not whole territories. So 13 minus 1, now we're back to 12, coming in to settle the promised land. One of the great debates in Jewish history is how the 12 Israelite tribes conquered the land of Canaan. The Bible provides contradictory accounts, but in essence it was a military takeover. Joshua led the Israelites in battle, most famously at Jericho, where his trumpeting brought down the walls. In this view, he led the Israelites as a unifying commander-in-chief who brought all 12 tribes together around this national goal. But the archaeology paints a different picture. There's not much evidence pointing towards violent conflict destroying Canaanite cities. Instead, there is evidence that a semi-nomadic group of people began establishing small settlements outside Canaanite cities during this era. 
It was a gradual period of colonization in which the Israelites, through intermarriage and urbanization, slowly but steadily replaced the Canaanites over perhaps a couple hundred years. But whether it was a swift military victory or a gradual replacement, sometime before the year 1000 BCE, the 12 tribes succeeded in settling into their respective territories in what today is modern Israel, western Jordan, and parts of Syria and Lebanon. It was around the year 1000 that the Bible records that the 12 tribes decided to unite into a single kingdom, known as the United Monarchy. It was first led by King Saul, then later by King David, and then King Solomon. The tribes kept their territories, 10 of them in the northern part of the kingdom, and two of them, Judah and Benjamin, in the south. And this becomes important, because the United Monarchy doesn't last long. In the year 930, it splits into two separate kingdoms. One in the north comprised of the Ten Tribes, which was called the Kingdom of Israel, and one in the south, around Jerusalem, comprised of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and it was called the Kingdom of Judah. Going all the way back to episode 3 of Jew I Don't Know, it was this southern Kingdom of Judah that survived the next millennium down to the Roman Empire, and from whom today's Jews are descended. Get it? Like, Judah? Jews? But we can put them aside for the rest of the episode, because we're focusing on the Ten Tribes. And as for those ten tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel, well, here's where our mystery begins. Alright, so now it's the 700s, and we've got our 10 tribes living up north in the kingdom of Israel and just trying to go about their lives, you know, like any of the rest of us, and then the Assyrians come in and sack the whole place. The Assyrians always ruin a good thing for everyone. We date the collapse of the kingdom of Israel to the year 722 BCE, and this is when the 10 tribes get scattered into the wind. So let's go through them. Two of the tribes, remember, Benjamin and Judah, they kept their southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, along with a bunch of the Levites who were living there as the priests. After 722, the tribe of Simeon, according to the Bible, also went south into Judah, where they were gradually absorbed by the Judas and the Benjamins and the Levites, and so they disappeared. The Book of Chronicles records that some of the members of the tribes of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulon also fled south to Jerusalem, just in time, it seems, to throw a huge party. You've heard of it. It's called Passover. They made animal sacrifices, ate lamb, baked matzah, played loud music, and generally rejoiced for seven straight days. Not since the time of King Solomon, says the Bible, was there such joy in Jerusalem. And meanwhile, the rest of the tribes up north who didn't manage to escape, Reuben, Issachar, Dan, Naphtali, Ephraim, and parts of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun, they were taken captive and deported to the far corners of the Assyrian Empire. And there, historians tell us, the tribes were gradually absorbed through assimilation and disappeared from history. Or did they? Because intriguing clues left like breadcrumbs over the centuries hinted that some portions of the tribes may have survived down through the ages. Modern scholarship has mostly refuted those accounts, but in others may have bolstered them. In at least one case, the evidence was good enough for the state of Israel to label the alleged descendants as Jews, even today. So let's dive in. The 
Roman Jewish historian Josephus is the guy who brought us the story of the Jewish revolt against the Romans in the first century of the Common Era, the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem and the battle at Masada. Josephus also wrote of a river in the Near East that was named after Shabbat. Legends about this river, which was called the Sambation, persisted into the medieval era and it began appearing in rabbinic sources. According to the rabbis, it was to the other side of the Sambation that the lost tribes were exiled after the fall of the Kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE. But you couldn't simply go there and get them. For six days a week, the Sambation was impossible to cross. Only on Shabbat did the waters cease to flow. But of course, that was the one day in which Jews are forbidden to travel. Trapped there by waters that raged with fire smoke and heavy stones, the lost Jews were forever caught on the other side, unable to desecrate Shabbat by attempting to cross. The Sambation then marked an essential boundary, a kind of event horizon that Jews on the other side could never breach. Okay, so where is this river? Well, some said it was in Judea, others in Syria or Lebanon, others down on the Arabian Peninsula, others even further afield. It's never been definitively located, but that has not stopped some adventurers from claiming to have stumbled upon lost tribes in various locations anyway. The most famous was a 12th century Jewish writer and explorer named Benjamin from the Spanish city of Tudela. A hundred years before Marco Polo set off to explore the east, Benjamin of Tudela beat him to all the best places, traveling through Europe and to North Africa and to the Near East and as far as Persia, writing extensively about his journeys, the places and people he encountered, and especially the Jewish communities he found. In Persia, what is modern-day Iran, he stayed with a Jewish community that told him of other Jews living beyond the distant mountains. These faraway Jews, according to what Benjamin was told, were the descendants of four of the lost tribes, Dan, Zebulon, Asher, and Naphtali. And then in Arabia, Benjamin visited the Jewish community of Kabar, near the city of Medina today, which by then had been around for 1,500 years or more. He wrote that the Jews there were descendants of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, and finally, although there remains some debate about the geographic location, Benjamin also noted the presence of Jews somewhere in or around Ethiopia. His work inspired Jewish and Christian adventurers alike to continue seeking out descendants of the lost tribes, and various sightings were reported back to Europe whenever new places and people were discovered, from the Americas to China. The Jewish messianic tradition continued to include the lost tribes in its philosophy that someday God would reunite the lost tribes with the present-day descendants, the Jews, of the tribe of Judah, bringing about a unification of the people of Israel in the Promised Land. Interest really took off in the 16 and 1700s, especially as the Europeans began setting, settling colonies up and down South, Central, and North America. So let's take a survey of a few of the various groups who have been considered descendants of the ten lost tribes. It gets pretty interesting because it turns out that some of them might actually be. Here in the United States, there has long been the rumor that the Native Americans are descendants of the Lost Tribes. In the mid-1600s, Christian missionaries found converting the Native Americans to be hard-going. They speculated that, well, maybe it's because they're Jewish. Mordechai Noah, the United States' first Jewish diplomat, he also believed that this was the case. But it was the Mormons who really propelled the whole idea forward. In the Book of Mormon, which was published in 1830 but supposedly written thousands of years ago, a Jewish family fled Jerusalem before the city fell in the year 586 BCE, 
and made their way across the Atlantic to America, the new promised land. Over the next several hundred years, as the family grew, it split into two tribes, a white tribe and a dark-skinned tribe. Eventually, some 1,500 years ago, the white tribe defeated the dark-skinned tribe, leaving as the only survivors the Native Americans, who are still considered to have been descended from the single Israelite family. According to the Mormon tradition, Native Americans are of the tribe of Manasseh. Survey says, no way. There's no DNA evidence linking Native Americans with anyone in the Near East, no linguistic connections between their respective languages, and no substantive cross-pollinating rituals or traditions either. Except for the Mormons, in which this identification continues to play an important theological role, no one is still pushing this idea anymore. So, thank you. Next. Now, stop me if any of these rituals sound familiar. Circumcision eight days after birth, keeping kosher dietary laws, wearing kipot on your head, yarmulkes, observing Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. These and other rituals are quite obviously Jewish, and you would of course expect to find them all over Israel, the United States, Europe, you know, anywhere you would find Jews. Okay, well how about the middle of Nigeria? The Igbo people are one of the largest ethnicities in Africa, and a small percentage of them practice these traditions and consider themselves Jewish. It's hard to say how many, out of around 34 million Igbo, estimates are between 5,000 and 30,000 identify as Igbo Jews. They claim descent from Jacob's son Gad. Three of Gad's sons, according to the Igbo, established their families in what is today Nigeria. Or in a slight variation, members of the tribe of Gad made their way to West Africa after the collapse of the Kingdom of Israel. Now, it's not actually the craziest idea. From a historic migration standpoint, it's possible that some Israelites would have traveled west across northern Africa, and there's some historical clues to suggest that. Some DNA studies have suggested a connection between the Igbo and the Jews. But still, most historians conclude that the Jews and the Igbo came in contact during the first millennium of the Common Era, when the trade routes across the Sahara led to some established Jewish communities, but not in the ancient past. There's also controversy about when and how the Igbo Jews began practicing Judaism. Some suggest that it might have been only in the last couple hundred years. There is an Igbo Jewish community in Israel, mostly in Tel Aviv, and Jewish groups in Israel and the United States provide resources, connections, and support for Igbo Jews. But still, their historic claims and other contemporary concerns haven't managed to convince Israel's Supreme Court that they should be recognized as Jews for the purposes of open immigration. And so their status as fully accepted Jews remains a bit in limbo. Somewhere between the year 1000 and the 1700s, but probably closer to the 1700s, an Indian Jew named David Rahabi visited a bunch of rural villages along the coast near Mumbai. And he found something interesting. Some people there were practicing basic forms of Jewish rituals and traditions. According to their traditions, after the Assyrian exile, the lost tribes wandered around the Middle East for several hundred years, eventually settling in India, where they assimilated into the surrounding cultures while preserving a few ancient Jewish customs. The great Jewish philosopher Maimonides noted in the 13th century that there was a Jewish community in India. David Rahabi brought these communities up to speed on Judaism, which was then passed down through the generations as these people, who came to be called the B'nai Israel, they migrated to other parts of India. In 1948, there were around 20,000 B'nai Israel, most of whom immigrated to Israel, the United States, and Canada. 
In Israel, the B'nai Israel struggled to be accepted as Jews and faced racial discrimination, and at least a few hundred of them were deported back to India after the Orthodox protested that they were not really Jews. Having been out of contact with other Jews for so many centuries, the rabbinate argued that their lineage had strayed too far from the traditional Jewish bloodline to be acceptable. Most of that group ended up coming back, and the Indian Jews kept fighting for their rights. Finally, in 1964, Israel's Supreme Court ruled in their favor. Under Israeli law, while the B'nai Israel are not considered descended from the Lost Tribes, they are considered fully Jewish. Which is a pretty interesting distinction. And there's another Indian Jewish group in a different part of the country, numbering around 10,000 people, that also claims descent from the Lost Tribes, specifically the tribe of Manasseh. They were pagan animists for most of their history, converted to Christianity during the 1800s, but by the middle of the 1900s began adopting Jewish practices in order, they said, to return to their ancient roots. They are called the B'nai Menashe, the sons and daughters of Manasseh, and began immigrating to Israel in the 1980s and 1990s. Israeli policy seesawed between allowing them or not, and there was controversy around settling several thousand of these Indian Jews in the occupied territories. In 2005, the Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel ruled that the B'nai Menashe were descended from the Lost Tribes, but that they would have to undergo formal Orthodox conversion in order to be accepted as Jewish enough to immigrate to Israel. But there you have it. We found a Lost Tribe! I bet you never thought it would be in a far corner of Northeast India next to Myanmar, but there you go. An official Lost Tribe still kicking around after 2,500 years. Around 3,000 of these B'nai Menashe Indian Jews live in Israel today. Alright, let's look at one more, perhaps the most famous. The Jews of Ethiopia, known as the Beta Israel, meaning the House of Israel. In the 9th century, a dark-skinned Jew stumbled out of the desert into Egypt and rocked the Jewish world with an extraordinary story. Eldad Hadani, as he was called, Eldad the Danite, told of a Jewish kingdom from whence he came in the south, around present-day northern Ethiopia. He spoke a weird version of Hebrew and carried Hebrew books, followed Jewish law, knew Jewish history. I mean, the guy was Jewish. But how did this Ethiopian kingdom of Jews get there? So the Beta Israel tell different origin stories. In one, after the Jews crossed the Red Sea in the exodus from Egypt, one group from the tribe of Dan split off and headed south to Ethiopia. So very, very ancient origins that then isolated them from almost the entirety of Jewish history. In another version, after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the first temple in the year 586 BCE, and exiled the Jews to Babylon, one group, also descended from the tribe of Dan, escaped southward, making their way to Ethiopia several hundred years later. And in yet another tradition, perhaps the most well-known, the Ethiopians traced their lineage to King Solomon. According to this tale, Solomon married the Queen of Sheba, and they had a son named Menelik. When the united monarchy split into two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, a group of Israelites, again from the tribe of Dan, left with Menelik to Ethiopia taking with them the Ark of the Covenant. There are a number of other origin stories, some based on legend, some based on historical accounts that seem plausible. It's an incredibly rich history and worthy of its own podcast episode, so remind me to do one someday. But here's the thing. For hundreds of years, the rabbinical authorities pretty much bought the story. 
An influential Italian rabbi named the Bartonura wrote in 1488 that he had met two of these dark-skinned Ethiopian Jews in Egypt, and they claimed to be of the tribe of Dan, and that they did, indeed, practice Judaism. He also wrote about the lost tribes living on the other side of the Sambation. And in the early 1500s, another rabbi, known as the Radbaz, certified that the Ethiopians were authentic Jews from the tribe of Dan. So based on all this, the chief rabbis of Israel in the 1970s certified that the Ethiopian Jews were both descendants from the tribe of Dan and authentic Jews. Under Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in 1975, the state of Israel recognized the right of the Beta Israel to immigrate to Israel as Jews. During the 1980s and 1990s, when Ethiopia was plagued with civil war, famine, and an anti-Israel and anti-Jewish regime, Israel airlifted tens of thousands of Ethiopian Jews in one of the most remarkable humanitarian rescue operations in recent history. And today, there are over 120,000 members of the Lost Tribe of Dan, Ethiopian Jews living in Israel. From African tribes to the Japanese, Native Americans to the Pashtuns of Pakistan, many groups have claimed, or have had the claim imposed on them, to be descendants of the Lost Tribes. Jewish authorities in the state of Israel today recognize only two as authentic. The Bede Menashe, Indian Jews from the tribe of Manasseh, and the Beta Israel, Ethiopian Jews from the tribe of Dan. As for all the rest, historians are surely correct that in the centuries after their deportation to Assyria, the ten tribes assimilated away to the people amongst whom they lived. So maybe we're asking the wrong question, searching for the wrong mystery. Maybe the question isn't where did the ten tribes go, but who we all are. For it is entirely possible that if the ten tribes really did exist, then today perhaps hundreds of millions of people are their descendants. It's not that the tribes were lost. It's that so many of us are related. So many of us share a common ancestry, similar stories, have had the experience of enslavement and exile and migration and immigration. As a basis for global mutual understanding and respect, perhaps that's a pretty good starting point. That at some point in all of our histories, we were considered lost. But in finding each other around the world, we do the work of bringing all the tribes and ourselves back together again. By the way, don't forget that you can find more information about all this and links to more content on my website, jewautonode.com, jewautonode.com. And okay, so from obscure ancient history to next time, one of the most well-known and deeply studied periods of history that nevertheless has left us with a few intriguing and tragic mysteries. The Holocaust. We'll dive into three unsolved questions from the 1940s. That's next time on Jew I Don't Know. Lahit throats. See you later. Thanks for listening. <laughs>